In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Hello and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. My name is Kimberly Lewis and I'm your host. And this series is in cooperation with Cinda Virtual, which brings you thought leaders and business stories from all over the world. Now, you can learn more about Cinda on www.cinda.org. But we don't just bring you thought leaders from all over the world. We also have listeners from all over the world. So good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new to the series, let me tell you what this series is about. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact, globalization, digital transition, and the connected world is having on our organizations and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive a long-term success. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence, digital transitions, and data protection regulations to leadership issues such as gender balance and business values and ethics that may impact your organization or your individual career. So please listen to us live every Tuesday, 3 p.m. And if you miss us live, don't worry about it because we are on every major podcast platform from Apple to Google to Stitcher to Spotify. You can find us all over the net. And I invite you to connect with me. Send me what your thoughts. Send an email to me at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. And let me know what you want to hear about on this show. But if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless if your business is international or local, make sure you join us each week. And we'll make sure that you take away something useful for either your business or yourself. Now on to today's episode, which is quite exciting. Um, We live in a world where change and transformation is the new normal. But sometimes we make decisions and we go about change in the wrong way. Even if we're surrounded by data, we don't always use it. And more, there's more information today available than there has ever been in the past. So we tend to look outward at data rather than inward. And sometimes companies do have to look inward. And our guest today is an expert on transformation and change and helps companies look for the answers by looking into their organizations rather than looking outward. Our guest today is Jay Goldman, co-founder and CFO of Sensei Labs and New York Times bestselling author of The Decoded Company. Sensei Labs creates data-driven digital workplace solutions and workplace solutions and challenges the world's largest companies to look inside their organization. And our technology is the technologies they have are enable project management, collaboration, data tracking and reporting, and knowledge management for modern organizations to help them become successful. For nearly 20 years, he has focused on technology, design, and the art of leadership. Sensei Labs is Jay's second tech startup. Additionally, he took on leadership roles as head of marketing at Ripple and managing director at Click Health. He regularly speaks with teams and companies across the globe about the future of work, including TEDx, NASA, Harvard Business School, Google, Twitter's, and Twitter's world headquarters. He's also written publications like for the Harvest Business Review, and he's been a panelist on CBC's The Nation. And he spends his days helping large organizations execute these critical programs and be successful. So Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kimberly. Pleasure to be here. So let's just kind of start, you know, to get get our listeners into it, let's kind of start um, with a really basic uh, question. You know, let's look at organizational culture today. I mean, it's changed so drastically over the last 30 years. Um, You know, you might say that, you know, when the Googles of the world came in and tech came in, it changed drastically, um, but it's continuing to change. And if I think about my father's culture when he went to work, um, it's so completely different than today. Um, what has caused these shifts? Is it globalization, technology? I'd say it's a, a kind of perfect storm of a whole bunch of different things coming together at the same time. So definitely the ones that you mentioned. In some ways, 
technology has led to different ways of working, which tends to transform culture. The idea of physical space as a determinant of culture is an impact there. So if we look at the layout of offices, even over that same 30-year period, the change to more open, shared, collaborative workspaces rather than everybody in an office is a factor in that. The idea that we can collaborate a lot more remotely changes those cultures. It, it may even be true that the last two years over the pandemic has driven more of that change than we saw in the 28 years before that, because we all collectively were forced to adopt a hybrid or even fully remote approach to working, which has a significant impact on culture, especially for organizations that aren't intentional about how that cultural impact will affect it. Or as we're seeing now, as companies start to think about what a return to an office or at least to a hybrid environment looks like, and we're seeing stark cultural differences between the companies that are talking about forcing their teams back into office to go back to normal the way it used to look like, and the companies that are embracing this as a moment of change and inflection and thinking about what a future looks like where hybrid is more the case, where global teams are maybe more the case, where technology-mediated collaboration is more the case, and all of those have very significant cultural impacts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting you said about the physical. I mean, we, you know, 30 years ago, you'd walk into an office and, and you could feel the culture by looking at it. Okay? Um, I remember walking into a London lawyer's office with a huge statue, dark wood, um, and you just kind of felt that culture. But as you said, you know, we're now in this hybrid and actually um, the pandemic, we're all working from home. H- how do you develop the culture kind of in that kind of environment? You know, um, what what's the culture based on? Yeah, I, I consulted once for a company <laughs> that um, I drove out to their headquarters. And so it was out in the countryside and it was this, you entered the, off of the highway into their campus and it was this long winding road past a pond with water fountains in it. And then you got to the building and then you were shown to the executive floor and then within that to the executive wing, which had plush carpeting. And I was shown into this wood paneled boardroom with a 40 person boardroom table with these big leather executive you know, seats. And then I sat down and then they said to me, we're having real trouble engaging with the millennials at our team and we don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I, I can think of a few reasons why that might be the case. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I think physical environment and this changes as of course with hybrid, but, but if we think just for a moment about offices, the physical environment of that office says so much about the culture of the organization. It can be a physical environment that promotes creativity and collaboration, or it can be a much more traditional environment in which those things just don't happen. It can be clear that hierarchy is important in the organization because of that. I started my career at IBM, and so IBM is a very traditional, or at least in, the, in those, maybe a little bit less so today, but certainly at the time it was, and it was even more hierarchical before that. And so there were stories about how if you worked in an IBM building, as you got promoted, your office moved up a floor. And there were standards about what you were allowed to have in your office on different floors because that hierarchy was so baked into the assumption of the company's culture. And so the extreme example was on floor four, you were allowed to have pencils, but they couldn't have erasers on them. On floor five, your pencils could have erasers on them. And that was how baked into the mentality of the company this concept of hierarchy was. Now you go into, especially if you go into maybe a tech startup office like ours, you get a broad open space. Everybody is seated at workstations. It's a shared space. We actually have no offices in our office. So no one has a, a dedicated space. It's built around collaboration and sharing. And that influences the thinking of everyone who walks into there. Mm-hmm. But I think your question is important. So now we've moved into a hybrid environment. How do we encourage that same intentionality about culture in an environment where we maybe don't have shared physical space. And you may have it occasionally. So even in a hybrid environment, some amount of the team will go into the office, maybe on a regular basis and maybe one or two days a week. The others who are maybe further apart. So we have a single office at Sensei, but we are a global team. And so our team members who are further away from our office may come in once a month or they may come in twice a year. And so they do sometimes get exposed to that physical environment and it's important to remain intentional about how you engineer it. But 
really in some ways this has stripped away a lot of what used to get mistaken for culture. Mm-hmm. So foosball table is not culture. Yeah. The uh, posters that are up in the break room with inspiring quotes on them are not culture. And so we've stripped away a lot of the dressings of culture and we get down to the more integral pieces. What actually makes a difference to your team? And I'd say that probably the the three most important decisions that you make certainly as a leadership team in an organization, and I I would say this is true regardless of scale, are who you hire, who you promote, and who you fire when you unfortunately have to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that really determines who is there. It's the, you know, getting the right people on the bus in the right seats, to use the old expression. Mm -hmm. And we think of this really as our job in, as the stewards of the Sensei Labs culture, is to really be gardeners. We think of the culture as a living thing. It will change over time. So to try to hold it static is a mistake because as the organization changes and grows, as our market changes and grows, we have to be adaptive to that. And so we think of it really as this living entity that we are responsible for. And it's our job to make sure that it gets enough sunshine and water and nutrients. And it's also our job to weed out the negative influences but the garden will grow the way that the garden grows. Mm -hmm. And so for us, that is holding true to a set of core values. We took the time to define them early on in the company's life. We recognized that culture really happens as soon as there are two people in a company. And so even for anyone who's running a very early stage startup who might be listening, you should start to think about culture at that point and be intentional about it because the culture is developing whether you're focused on it or not. And your job as that gardener is to say, what are the parts that I want to encourage? What are the parts that might need a little bit of scaffolding to help them grow in the right direction? And then what are the weeds that we want to weed out here? And that's going to encourage that culture, regardless of whether you're in a hybrid environment or you're in an office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's really good examples and great um, great comment on that. And, and I was thinking about... A question I have, we're making all these shifts, okay, and all these shifts are happening right now. But when I was reading your book, essentially, um, in your book, you said, aside from making these shifts, we also still work very similarly to what we did 100 years ago. What did you mean by that? Yeah, if you think about the way that work gets done. So Gary Hamill, who's one of the world's top management thinkers, has talked about the technology of management being one of the most critical pieces of technology we've ever invented. So if you think back to the Industrial Revolution and you think back to the new technologies that came in with that, they unlocked human achievement in a way that we've never seen prior to that. But those technologies of management haven't actually changed very much since then. So if Mm -hmm. we think about some of the core examples that will be true in probably almost every company for people who are listening, something like the annual performance review. That annual performance review is terrible. Everybody Mm -hmm. hates the annual performance (laughs) review. It doesn't achieve anything. It certainly doesn't encourage better performance. It takes a huge amount of time to execute it, especially if you do everyone in the same cycle. You might lose a few weeks of productivity out of the organization while everyone completes their 360 reviews and all of the other pieces of that. We put all of this together. And then we deliver it to people. And really what we're doing is we've connected compensation to feedback. And now we have to give the compensation feedback that justifies the budget for raises or promotions or whatever else. So we can't tell people that they did a great job if we don't have the budget to encourage that. So we've done this entire exercise to give people feedback because corporations have been doing this for probably 100 years but it doesn't actually achieve anything. In fact, it is a a net negative for everyone involved in the process. And that's what we mean by the ways of working haven't really changed all that much. Actually, you're right. I mean, I had to laugh when you say, I mean, I I think about the years and um, I came from uh, the telecommunications sector and, you know, we had those rules going up, you know, like IBM, you know, the the offices were bigger, smaller. And then on performance evaluation, you actually had almost eight weeks where you got no productivity. (laughs) Right. The entire organization is just spending eight (laughs) weeks doing performance reviews that don't actually get better performance. 
Exactly, exactly. Um, we're going to take a short break now. And um, when we come back, I, I, I want to talk about kind of, you know, go into your book a little bit and, and, and talk about how we approach these things and, and align, you know, culture with purpose or, you know, there's something, some issues that you discuss in the book. And for our listeners, we are talking with Jay Goldman, and he is the co-founder and CEO of Sensei Labs, and he's a New York Times bestselling author of The Decoded Company. It's available on Amazon, a great read, so I definitely recommend that. And Sensei Labs creates data-driven digital workplace solutions to solve challenges for the world's largest companies and the challenges that we face every day. Their technologies uh, enable project management, collaboration, data tracking and reporting, and knowledge management that organizations today need to be successful. For nearly 20 years, he has been focused on technology, design, and the art of leadership. And Sensei Labs is Jay's second tech startup. Now, if you'd like to learn more about them, go to www.senseilabs.com. And Jay has his own website also under www.jgoldman.com. Please visit those websites. And you can also find them on social media. Jay is on Facebook and on LinkedIn and on Twitter and on Instagram under Jay Goldman. And also on YouTube under Jay Goldman and Sensei Labs. So please reach out to Jay and his company. And this broadcast is also brought to you by Cinda. And Cinda is one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search association. Cinda holds virtual meetings, conferences, does market research and legislative white papers focused on digital transitions. And you can find more about Cinda on www.cinda.org. They also have conferences and their next conference is coming up October 16th to the 18th in Florence, Italy. And you can find more about that on www.cinda.org. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we're talking about organizations and organization culture, and we're talking with Jay Goldman, he's the co-founder and CEO of Sensei Labs, and he's also New York Times bestselling author of The Decoded Company. And you can find the book on Amazon. And Sensei Labs creates data-driven digital workplace solutions to help solve the, the challenges that companies face today. And Jay, before the break, you know, we were talking kind of in general about how organization culture has changed and, and, and you know, you, you've made some comments on, on things that we focus on and culture being really who you hire, who you promote and who you fire. And, and that's very people driven. And, um, you know, in your book, you said that sometimes to companies try to align organization culture with purpose, but they actually miss the mark on the people side. What do you mean by that? The people side is probably the hardest part. And you look at any transformation, and, and it's probably true that 
pretty much every organization in the world is going through some state of transformation at the moment. The hardest part of those transformations is the change management and the people side. It's not the technology piece. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about those transformations, especially a bit more of an old school mentality of thinking of them as transformation projects with a kind of defined start and end and deliverable rather than a constant state of evolution uh, or what we call enterprise orchestration, this idea that the only constant will ever be change and the rate of change is accelerating. So organizations need to shift from a project-driven mentality to a constant state of evolution. But when you look at it that way, if there's a technology component of this, that's the easy part. And there may be some challenges in there, upgrading legacy systems or integrations or whatever, but the really hard part is always the people side. Mm -hmm. So if you are undertaking those kinds of changes in your organization, People tend to ignore the soft part and focus on the hard part. But the hard part, the skills, the or rather, sorry, the technology in those pieces, it's actually the easy part. The soft part, being the people, is actually the hard part. And that's where most organizations miss the mark. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's how they approach it, too. And that's what you talk about in your book. And um, and that's what I'd like to talk about a little bit. You know, how, how do we approach this? You know, are we approaching people or we're challenging problems the same way we do today that we did years ago. Um, how do you make sure you don't miss the mark on people? Well, one of the ways to do that is to talk to the people and engage them in the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And that, I know that sounds ridiculously simple, but it's a step that gets missed a lot. So who are the stakeholders and how do we involve them? People really don't mind change if they're involved in making the change. Mm -hmm. They object to change when it's imposed on them. And so to involve stakeholders in the change that you're doing and to consult with them will engage them in the process in a way where, first of all, their opinions will become part of it. And that's really important because you'll understand things from them. But then the second piece is they will be much more open and responsive to the change that's happening rather than getting a all staff email that they had no idea was happening and it's a significant change and it's now been imposed on them. So one of the easiest ways is really just to engage people in the process and to listen to them. The danger there though, and I'll call this out, is to engage them in the process by asking for their opinions and then completely disregarding their opinions and doing whatever <laughs> you were going to do anyway, because that is actually worse than not engaging them. They will feel like they were consulted, you didn't care what they thought, and then you went ahead with whatever your plan was. And I remember in my own career, I was part of an organization, I won't name them for the sake of <laughs> protecting the guilty, but they were undertaking a major move of the facility where we worked to another location and they were buying new office furniture. And so this was a pretty significant change, obviously. The location was shifting and everybody was gonna have to commute to a different place. And so I think maybe as partly a reward, they said to everybody who worked there, hey, we've got our office furniture vendor to come in and set up the office furniture in the cafeteria. So come down on your lunch break and take a look at it and then help us select which one we're gonna buy. And everyone thought, oh, that's nice. They're bringing us in and consulting us. We get a chance to help choose this. And that did make everybody feel better about this change that was happening. So we all went down on our lunch break and they had set up three different setups that you could look at. It was almost like a mini Ikea where they had built out these model rooms and you could go and look at them. And it felt a little bit Goldilocks-like because there were three of them. And the difference was basically the height of the walls around the cubicle because the furniture was the same, the desk was the same, the chair was the same, you got a whiteboard, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But basically the lowest one was kind of hip height. So there was no privacy at all. The second one was sort of person height. So there was a reasonable amount of privacy, maybe not a tall person, but reasonable amount. And then the third one, the walls went up basically to the ceiling. And then you walked through these three and there was a voting booth at the end. And everyone unanimously picked the tallest one because everyone wanted to feel like they had privacy in an office. Mm -hmm. So the results of the poll came out and the company said, oh no, we can't do that one. It's way too expensive. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, so no. Then why did you ask everyone's opinion? <laughs> that was going to be the outcome anyway, right? And so they picked the middle one, which was predictable. Yeah. They should have just picked the middle one to start off with because exactly. now you've asked everyone and everyone didn't get what they wanted. 
Right. Uh, that, that's a super example. And how many times have we seen that happen in organizations or companies, you know? Right. And um, yeah, I mean, talking to the people and, and, and gathering information is really important. That's where, you know, you start to talk about, you know, I mean, that's data in your book. Okay. And you talk about, you know, using this feedback or using this information and using the data to, to, to enterprise transformation or cultural transformations. So, you know, what kind of data are you talking about? Okay. When we're talking about using data to make transformations. Yeah. In the book, we distinguish between two different kinds of data as broad categories. Mm -hmm. So think about everything that happens in your organizations today and all of the systems that you run, even things as simple as email, meetings, Slack or Teams, that kind of thing. And then think about the people who are part of that. Both of those produce sets of data. So what we define as the two sets are ambient data, which comes out of the use of those tools. It's almost like digital body language, or some people refer to it as digital exhaust. It's just the usage of the tools produces data. And a good example of that might be if we looked at the calendaring system inside of a company, whether it's Google Calendar or Outlook or whatever, and we could extract from that a social graph of everyone that everyone meets with. And we would see how often they meet together and for how long. And we might gain some insights about the organization out of that. And aside from wanting to make sure that we have permission, we don't need to ask anybody for that information. It just exists in the organization. The other kind of data we call self-reported data, which is when we ask people for something and then they provide it to us. And so, you know, a classic example that we've already picked on is the annual performance review. But mm -hmm. if we look at that performance review, if you ask me for 360 feedback about my colleague Sue, I'm gonna tell you what I think. But that answer is going to be heavily biased, some conscious biases and some unconscious biases. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, I'm gonna tell you what I think you wanna hear. And in other ways, I might be thinking about the political implications of Sue getting a good review or not getting a good review. Maybe we're in competition for a job and I wanna make her look worse or whatever. And so self-reported data will always come through the lens of bias. When we talk about using data in these transformations, we're talking about the combination of those two things. So where can you rely on ambient data, which will not have bias in it, or generally won't have bias? Some of the algorithms that derive that data may have hidden bias in them, but generally speaking, it's less biased. And then where can you use self-reported data for the things that it's really good at providing? So when we talk in Decoded, there are three Decoded principles in the book. The first is technology as a coach which is really using technology to help people get to a higher level of performance. The second is data as a sixth sense. How do we augment people's existing five senses with a data sense that helps them make better decisions faster? And then the last decoded principle is engineered ecosystems. How do we intentionally engineer the ecosystem of our environment, including our culture, to get to a, a better, more engaging um, in organization? Mm -hmm. And so data really runs across all three of those. Okay. And, and if you're looking at decoding in those, those principles, okay. Um, how do you, as a manager, you're going through the ambient data, that's pretty interesting and it's easy to get, as you said, non-bias, but, but how do you find the middle between those two? Um, as you said that the, the self-reporting data is, is quite biased. I mean, how do you, when you're starting to, to merge this data, how do you balance that? Yeah, if you can get to a large enough set of self-reported data, it cancels out some of the biases. So mm -hmm. depending on what kind of data we're talking about. For example, if you're running a major transformation in a large corporation and you might have hundreds of people engaged in that, if you ask them for a weekly review of their programs and they provide your typical RAG review, red, amber, green, if you extract across that full set, you've got a large enough data set that it'll cancel out some of the individual biases and you'll end up with a fairly accurate picture. But Sometimes you do need to actually use a much smaller data set of self-reported data. And so data is a sixth sense. Part of that idea is how do we combine instincts with analytics? If we mm -hmm. think about making a decision, whatever that decision is in the organization, whether it's a major or minor decision, we kind of instinctively want to find some data to help inform our decision. And then we want to go with what our instincts tell us. Some people will be very data-driven and very non-instinct. Others will be mostly gut feeling and instinct and they won't rely on data very much. There's an example in Dakota Company about UPS 
doing a project that they call Orion, which was a approach to how they could get to shorter routes for their drivers, less accidents in North America, certainly where this project was based. Left turns are actually the most dangerous part of driving. It's where most of the accidents happen. And they wanted to find ways to reduce the carbon footprint. And so they looked across all of this driving data that they had from fleet tracking, and they derived an algorithm called Orion, which would tell the drivers how to deliver their packages. And then they got a strong response from the drivers that they didn't want to be told what to do. They were professionals, they knew how to deliver their packages. And so there was a bit of a, a well, not even a bit, there was a strong pushback against adoption of this tool. So they did a really smart thing. And instead of enforcing it against those objections, and this is where that people element of change management comes in, they said, okay, let's test this out together. We're going to divide these drivers up into three groups. For the purpose of this experiment, we're going to ask one group to just do whatever Orion tells them. We're going to ask the second group to do what Orion tells you unless you think you have a better answer and then do what you think is right. And then for the third group, we're not going to give you Orion at all, and you're just going to continue to do whatever you were doing. And they established a bunch of success metrics like fewer accidents, reduced CO2, shorter time to deliver all the packages so the driver's shifts didn't get extended. And over the course of this experiment, it came down to, you could probably guess the answer, the middle group who paired their own instincts with analytics mm -hmm. got to a better result because there were places where Orion could anticipate something that they couldn't see. There's an accident way up ahead. You have no idea it's there. Traffic is backed up. Don't go that way. But then there were times where Orion couldn't see what was happening on the street right in front of them. And they were able to come to better decisions. Yeah. And so between those two, it got them to a better outcome. And that's really where that self-reported, possibly biased data and the analytics and AI and machine learning and everything else that we can do these days get paired together to get to the best answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a super story and a super example. And that's really, you know, using data and using, you know, um, the sixth sense. And just really, really interesting. And you have a couple other examples in the book. Um, well, I encourage people to look at the book. But uh, we're going to take a short break now, Jay. And when we come back, I, I want to talk about um, the digital footprint of your employees and talk about, you know, how you really, you know, use, you're talking the three principles of decoding. How do you use this technology as a coach and a trainer? In, in, you know, the workforce. So for our listeners, we are talking with Jay Goldman, and he's a founder and CEO of Sensei Labs and New York Times bestselling author, The Decoded Company. And that's what we're talking about today. And Sensei Labs creates data-driven digital workplace solutions to solve challenges that, to some of the world's largest companies. And their technologies enable project management, collaboration, data tracking and reporting, and knowledge management that help organizations succeed. Now, if you'd like to find more about them, then please go to www.senseilabs.com. And Jay has his own website on www.jgoldman.com. Jay is also all over the social media. You can find him on Jay Goldman on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and also on YouTube. So please reach out to Jay. And the book, The Decoded Company, is available on Amazon and is a great read. This broadcast is also brought to you by Cinda. And Cinda is one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations. And they hold virtual trainings, conferences, market research, and do legislative white papers focused on digital. They also have a platform, an e-learning platform, in cooperation with Boss Capital out of San Diego. And this platform is for startups, product managers, and SMBs to help companies succeed. So you can find all of this on www.cinda.org. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? 
choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private tv channel we support multiple media formats so all of your video content can be in one place we offer a number of advertising and video packages for more information visit voiceamerica.tv if you think you've seen online tv like this before let us surprise you Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host, and today we're talking with Jay Goldman, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Sensei Labs, and he's the best-selling New York Times author of The Decoded Company. And we're, we're talking about kind of the organizational culture change and what's really going on in the workplace today. And Jay, before you know, we took the break, you know, we've been talking a lot about um, seeing what's going on in your organization, using data and going on. And when you when you take this data, this ambient data and you know, the self-reporting data, um, a great example on on using data and people to try to develop a sixth sense on what's right. As you're taking this data, you're actually kind of seeing a, a digital footprint of your organization or your employees. Um, can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that the, one of the questions that comes up here is, <laughs> is this creepy? And I think <laughs> it's important to address that one kind of off the start. We talk about this in the book. There is a bit of a big brother effect possible here. And it's important to stay clear of that in how you think about this and the policies that you put in place. So one of the things we encourage is to think about open access to the same set of data. If you know something about somebody Generally, it's better if they can know the same thing about you. And in a traditional top-down organization, that's not always true. So your mm -hmm. boss may know things about you, but you don't know things about your boss. And that's where the big brother aspect of this can come into play. So if you give people access to insights derived from that data, then if everyone has access to the same insights, it helps to level that playing field. You're helping everybody to be better rather than consolidating power into certain parts of the organization. Maybe easier said than done, but that is kind of a guiding principle as you're thinking about this. Mm -hmm. I would look at that digital body language in terms of what can it help us to understand about how people work? So an early example from our own history, when we uh, when Click Health started as a company and Sensei Labs is a spin out from Click Health. So we tell the story in the book about the platforms that Click has built for itself, including Genome, which is its custom operating system. And really, this comes from an insight that was very early in Click's history by Aaron Goldstein. Aaron's one of the founders of Click and the COO. And Aaron realized probably around 50 people that the complexity of getting work done in the organization was increasing pretty dramatically. They had just moved into a new facility that had two rooms rather than one room. And so he noticed that now the people in one room would email the people in the other room rather than just talking to them. <laughs> and you couldn't get a sense anymore. As you said earlier, you could get a sense of culture just by looking around, but you couldn't do that now that there were two rooms because you couldn't get a sense of what everyone was working on anymore just by looking. And so as he looked at that and realized this is only going to get worse as the organization gets bigger, and in fact, it's probably not linearly worse, it's probably exponentially worse, which is correct, because the number of connections between people increases at a faster rate as the organization gets bigger. And so he had the insight that email might be a good communication tool, but it's really a terrible collaboration tool. Now, he had this insight in about 1999. So it was a yeah. long time ahead of most organizations, which really were forced out of email and into things like Slack and Teams over the last two years. But Click was early to say, let's move away from email for 
collaboration. And they put in place what at the time was just an off-the-shelf ticket tracking system that you might use as a customer service rep. You say, if Kimberly and Jay are working on something, instead of Kimberly sending Jay an email, she's going to send him a ticket or what became known as a task. And they can collaborate back and forth on that task, or they can pull other people into it. Or if they need to work on some files, they can attach them to the task. And this gets us out of all of the traps that happen in email. We've all been CC'd into the middle of a giant thread. We don't know why we're in this. We have to go back and read the whole mm -hmm. history just to figure that out. Everyone's talking about yeah. an attachment that was three emails ago. We don't even have the attachment, so we don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and really, we're just trying to figure out, did someone CC me into this to cover their own butt? Or do they CC <laughs> me into this because I actually need to be part of this, right? Yeah. So tasks moves away from all of that. And so this was not an intent yet to get that digital body language. It was just an intent to get to better collaboration. But very quickly after deploying this, Aaron and Liram Siegel, Liram's the other co-founder of Click, started to look at this data about these tasks. And they realized that actually, if you step back, the flow of tasks through the organization, which could be easily measured just by looking at the data, was actually very informative about what was happening in the organization today. So where were their bottlenecks and where was work getting stuck at the team level, at the individual level as well. And you could build some intelligence into this. This is way before concepts of AI and machine learning became more commonplace, but even just some smart business rules that were able to look for patterns. So we identified a pattern very early, which we call task tennis. Task tennis is Kimberly and Jay are working on this thing and they keep bouncing this task back and forth between them. Now we don't necessarily know why, but we do know that historically, if it passes a certain number of bounces, there is likely a problem in getting this work done. It might be that um, Kimberly wasn't clear about the initial requirements for the task, and so Jay keeps asking questions and sending things back. Could honestly be that Jay's being a bit of a jerk and he doesn't want to do the work, so he keeps bouncing it back. It, lots of possible reasons, but the pattern of this going back and forth becomes representative that there might be an issue. And so flagging that to a project manager to say, you should take a look at this task and just make sure everything's okay, even without the intelligence of knowing what's wrong, was an early warning detection system, kind of a canary in the coal mine, that helped to actually prevent lots of downstream problems that would otherwise have manifested when this task ended up being late or didn't get completed or got completed badly. And that was really the beginning of this idea that there's all of this body language about the organization and about individuals within this that we can start to look at and it becomes very informative of what's happening in the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it becomes informative. You said you can, you can look at that and see if there's a problem or you can make decisions based on this. And um, this comes back to, to the principles that you talk about. So taking all this information and, and using it, um, you talk about technology as a coach trainer, okay? So we can use this to better ourselves, better our processes. Can you just talk about a little bit what you mean by using the information and technology as a coach trainer? If you think about human achievement, if we look at any really great examples of human achievement, there is almost always a coach involved of some kind. Mm -hmm. So if you look at athletes, there's a very clear coach. It's the coach of the team. If you look at musicians, you'll often find that a singer went to a vocal coach or a guitar player has been getting lessons and coaching from a better guitar player. If you look at executives, you'll often find that they had either an actual named coach or they had a group of advisors that they went to, but they were always getting that coaching that's personalized for them that helps them to achieve that level of success. But unfortunately, that's not really scalable when we look at an organization. If you have hundreds of people working for you, you can't really have hundreds of coaches that everyone gets a personalized coach. Yeah. Even if you share coaches amongst a group of people, it's just not really a scalable solution. So we started to think about those patterns that might come up in that coaching that would actually be repeated and that we could use technology to help deliver some of that coaching. And that's where analyzing that digital body language, that ambient data comes into play. It helps to look across that data and then to provide coaching or teachable moments that might help people to achieve better performance in the state of flow that they're in by delivering that coaching to them at exactly the moment where it's gonna have the biggest impact. So you might look at something like a process that you run quite regularly in your organization. The first time someone goes through that, they really need all of the guardrails and the rules and all of that stuff because otherwise there's a high chance that they're gonna get it wrong. 
But the hundredth time they go through that process, the guardrails and everything else are probably slowing them down. So there is an opportunity there to look at the data that we have. How many times has Jay gone through this process and how successfully has he been able to deliver it? And as his level of experience goes up, can we start to take away some of the guardrails? So I'll give you an example from Click. Click is really a, a commercialization partner that works with life science companies to bring life-saving therapies to market. By commercialization partner, it's really a marketing agency with lots of services that are broader and life science specific, but in many ways a marketing agency. So you think about what typically happens in a professional services model. If I'm on the client service team, I'll have a sign, a statement of work in front of my client. So they want us to build a website, let's say. And that statement of work is for however much money it's going to cost to build this website. And I get the go ahead from my client. So they say, okay, we're ready to go. You've got approval from me. I just have to get the paperwork signed. Now, we know what happens when they say that. It could be like a month before the signed paperwork actually comes back because it has to go through all of these different levels and whatever else. Mm -hmm. So in an organization traditionally, there would not be an ability for us to go ahead until we actually had the signed paperwork because what happens if it doesn't get signed and we do some work and we don't get paid for it? Or in many agencies that I might now have to go to the, the finance team and say, hey, can we early start this work? Are you comfortable with that? And then they have to make a determination about that. We looked at this and said, you know, early starting work up to a threshold is something that we can trust our people to do especially if they've shown a good history of managing their portfolios. So why don't we just look at all the data we have? We know exactly how good a job they've been doing in managing their portfolio. And so we can take a look for an individual person and say, okay, how much dollars under management does Jay have? How successful has he been at managing that and actually realizing the revenue for the organization? What's the risk factor in allowing Jay to early start work? And then we can activate an early start button that allows me to make that decision and maybe up to a certain dollar amount. And maybe that dollar amount grows over time as I prove that I'm more able to manage this. What we've done is enable me to give better service to my clients to help the organization pull work through faster, to increase utilization of all the teams who are going to deliver that work, all by taking that digital body language about how well I manage my accounts and using it to inform a real-time decision about whether I'm trusted by the organization to start that work. It is such a huge difference to that organization that senior seasoned client service people who have joined Click from other agencies are completely blown away by the ability to do this early start. It just does not exist in the traditional agency environment. And it makes them feel empowered and trusted, which is a huge motivator for them to remain within the organization yeah. and you know, to, to stay there because they want to be treated like adults and trusted. And that's exactly what it does. Yeah. And, and that really, and that brings engagement, that brings trust and that that's a super example. And Jay, we're getting towards the end and this is just really interesting stuff. And, you know, one of the last thing you talk about is, is, you know, using this information to engineer ecosystems. I don't think we're going to be able to get into that um, with the amount of time we have left, but I think that's really important that our listeners now get the book and, and read about that. Um, if you have one thing, just one sentence to say about engineering ecosystems to kind of give us a little teaser to get the book, what would that be? <laughs> Actually, I think we did a good job covering it when yeah. we talked about culture right off yeah. the bat, because that idea of being intentional about your culture and engineering it to be what you want it to be and to deliver the right things is really the, the premise of that decoded principle. Obviously, in the book, we talk about using data to do that, but mm -hmm. that is really the idea behind it. Okay, great. And Jay, to sum it up, one one last question for me. Okay, this this is all fascinating. We're using we're looking inward rather than outward, and I think that's what many organizations don't do. And if you're going to look two years from today or ten months from today, you had one thing to say about the future of work. What would that be? One thing to say about the future of work. Yeah. Um, I think that we have fundamentally changed who can work on different things. And that change will take years to really work its way through the system. The freedom for me to say, I have a job based in Toronto, which is where I'm located, but I can go to Costa Rica and do my job from there and live on the beach is an amazing empowerment from the team member side. 
But it's also important to recognize that it no longer means that the company has to hire in Toronto. And it now means that smart companies are looking at this as mm -hmm. the global labor market has just opened up to me in a way that I couldn't have done before. And if I fully embrace this hybrid model, I can actually find the best people in the world who are able to contribute to the team. I can bring in lots of different cultural influences. So when I think back to my garden that I'm responsible for, I'm now introducing lots of different kinds of plants and it's going to change that garden in unexpected and amazing ways. But it's going to take us a few years to really figure out what that means when a startup that traditionally would have just looked in its local environment to hire people is now starting from day one, hiring people on a global basis. Yeah, super, super last words and and great insights, Jay. And um, Jay, for our guests, we've been talking with Jay Goldman, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Sensei Labs. And he's the New York Times bestselling author of The Decoded Company. And Sensei Labs creates data-driven digital workplace solutions to solve the challenges that we're facing today. And their technologies enable project management, collaboration, data tracking and reporting, and knowledge management that help organizations succeed. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Really fascinating. I highly recommend the book to the listeners. And um, it was great talking to you. Yeah, thanks, Kimberly. It was great being here. Yeah, good. For our listeners, uh, please reach out to Jay. You can reach out to him on www.senseilabs.com. He also has his own website, jaygoldman.com, and he's all over, all over social media on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, and also YouTube under Jay Goldman. So please reach out to him. And thank you for listening today. This broadcast has also been brought to you by Cinda. Cinda is one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations. They hold virtual trainings, conferences, market research, and do legislative white papers focus on digital. They also have a partnership with Boss Capital out of San Diego, where they have an e-learning platform in cooperation with Boss for startups, product managers, and SMBs. And this e-learning platform helps companies succeed. So please reach out to Cinda at www.cinda.org. And don't forget to listen to us every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Pacific time, and tune in again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.